Uh, Father, we thank you that in so many places your word is so clear. Uh, But we thank you that we do not come to your word with merely our own intelligence. Father, we acknowledge that it is you who must illumine our minds and our hearts by your spirit. It is you that who must speak. And unless we hear you speaking, our hearts will still be hardened, our our ears uh, will still be shut. So Father, we look to you, we humble ourselves before you. Please work in us, please change us and transform us, so that surely people will know that you are the Most High King of Heaven. Thank you, Father. Amen. So you recognize that this is a sort of a letter written by Nebuchadnezzar. Right? So it is different from the other passages that we've encountered in Daniel so far. So this is, this is Nebuchadnezzar writing a letter to the whole empire. Okay? And in one sense, King Nebuchadnezzar at that time was uh, really king of the whole known earth. So he can write to the nations and peoples of every language. He's just writing to all of his subjects. Uh, and you know from what we've read that he tells of the mercy God has shown him. And he proceeds to tell the narrative of what happened to him. And as you can see in verse 4, he starts the story by saying he was at home, he was prospering, he was uh, enjoying life. And then he had this dream. Again, uh, another dream that made him very afraid. But this time he doesn't play hide and seek with his wise men. You know, back in chapter 2, he refused to tell them what the dream was. You got to tell me what the dream and interpret it. But this time, for whatever reason, he tells them the dream. And, uh, you know, as Sihui read for us, it was about this tree and etc. etc. right? So the, the wise men, uh, obviously no surprise, could not interpret it for Nebuchadnezzar okay, until Daniel comes. And you see Daniel makes his appearance in verse 8. Finally, Daniel came into my presence and I told him the dream. He is called Belteshazzar after the name of my God and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. So it's quite interesting that in this story, Nebuchadnezzar refers to Daniel not with his uh, Babylonian given name, but refers to him as Daniel. Okay, so some people have seen that, ah, this is an indication that Nebuchadnezzar, you know, instead of calling Daniel by the name of his God, you know, Bel to he calls him by Daniel, which means God is my judge, you know, Yahweh is my judge. And they see in that an indication that Nebuchadnezzar, you know, after this whole story, after this whole incident, uh, is a genuine convert to Yahweh. Okay. Now I'm, I'm not so convinced because even though he refers to Daniel as Daniel by his, uh, you know, beautiful Hebrew name, he does say, uh, he is called Belteshazzar after the name of my God. And here, the spirit of the holy gods is in him. So this is Nebuchadnezzar writing after the incident, but he still refers to Daniel as having the spirit of the holy gods, plural. So, I mean, that for me is like, 
maybe he, he had this really important experience with God, but I'm not so convinced that he has genuinely converted. But that's, that's, that's not important. But it's interesting that in this form, okay, this is a letter written by Nebuchadnezzar, but in its final form is prepared by most likely Daniel. Like the whole book is prepared by Daniel. Daniel chooses to record what Nebuchadnezzar says about him. So in verse 8, he records that Nebuchadnezzar says that Daniel has the spirit of the holy gods in him. And then verse 9, again, Daniel records uh, Nebuchadnezzar saying, Oh, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Now, why does Daniel take the time to record down what Nebuchadnezzar says about Daniel having the spirit of the holy gods in him? Now, there is one other time where a character in the Bible is said to have the spirit of the holy gods in him. And that is Joseph. Okay, all the way back in Genesis, uh, Pharaoh says about Joseph, that Joseph, ah, you have the spirit of the gods in you. Now, I think what's happening here is Daniel, by his careful repeating of what Nebuchadnezzar says about Daniel, that he has the spirit of the holy gods, is meant to remind, to help his Jewish readers Think back to Joseph. The, 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 the last time someone said, some pagan king said about a, a, a man of God that he had the spirit of the holy gods in him, that was Joseph. And how did God use Joseph? God was with Joseph. God was with his people even though they were under the subjugation of a pagan king. And God was powerful enough to deliver his people and bring them into the promised land. So I think Daniel is, you know, through this careful repeating, uh, wanting to uh, assure God's people that God who did that with Joseph and his people then is powerful and able to do the same with them now in their time under this pagan king. So uh, Nebuchadnezzar continues the story. He tells Daniel the dream. And then uh, we read up to the part where Daniel is going to interpret. Okay, so have your finger in verse 19. And what we'll do is we'll walk through Daniel's interpretation. Uh, like I said, it's a very clear passage. But we'll, we'll do a walkthrough of it. And then we'll think about what uh, God is trying to say to us. So after Daniel hears the dream, okay, in verse 19, then Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Then Belteshazzar answered, My lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies <clears throat> and its meaning to your adversaries. So after hearing the dream, Daniel is <gasps> he's quiet, right? He's, 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 he's too terrified to speak. And I think what's happening here is because Daniel is very fully aware of the fiery temper of Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, back in chapter 2, where he wanted to kill all the wise men, and then chapter 3, he wanted to put those uh, his friends into the fiery furnace. So, so Daniel knows that if he just gives the interpretation straight away, 
he would be the bearer of very bad news. And who knows what Nebuchadnezzar would do. So he, he remains quiet first. Until Nebuchadnezzar gives him permission. Okay, speak, speak. Don't worry. You know, don't be perplexed. Just tell me the dream. And then Daniel, very diplomatic, says, Oh, I wish it applied to your enemies instead of you. And then so he's, you know, softening up the king to hear what would be some really bad news. So, he gives the interpretation. Verse 20. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong, with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the wild animals, and having nesting places in its branches for the birds. Your majesty, you are the tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky, and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. So you are the great tree, right? All the peoples of the nations, the languages, they've come under you, right? You are the king that provides for them. They, they depend on you for their resources, right? You are the great tree. You're, you're mighty. You're, you're the top reaching to heaven. And then Daniel continues the interpretation. Verse 23. Your majesty saw a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven and saying, Cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump, bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field, while its roots remain in the ground. Now, if you compare Daniel's interpretation with the dream as uh, Nebuchadnezzar narrated it uh, uh, in the earlier part, you notice that Daniel concentrated on the positive parts. Oh, the tree was great, you know, the fruit and the dominion. He, he, he focused on that part and then he said, Oh, your majesty, you are that tree. But the negative part where the holy watcher comes and says, you know, he will lose his mind, all that, all that. Daniel contracts it and only gives Nebuchadnezzar the gist. I mean, because, like, like I said, he knows Nebuchadnezzar has a fiery temple. So why, why dwell on all the negative parts? Just, just get to the gist, right? And he says, yes, the, you are that tree and the holy watcher, this holy one, uh, which most likely is an angel, angel sent from God to deliver this message, is that this tree, which is you, your majesty, will be cut down, but you will not be totally destroyed. A stump will remain and the stump will be bound with iron and bronze. Now, uh, commentators disagree and there's like five different ways of understanding what the bronze and the iron covering the stump mean. I think uh, what is most likely for me is that the bronze and the iron is to protect the stump, like to prevent it from splitting, prevent it from uh, being destroyed by the wild animals. So that in the midst of this great tree, being cut down, the leaves and the fruit being stripped bare, which is a clear picture of Nebuchadnezzar's majesty, dominion falling. But a stump remaining and the stump being protected. So in the midst of destruction, in the midst of judgment, there is a glimpse, a sign of hope, which uh, connects to what the interpretation Daniel will give Nebuchadnezzar. So, 
he continues in verse 23, Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the wild animals until seven times pass by for him. So Nebuchadnezzar will lose his mind. He will live out in a while. He will think that he's an animal. He will eat grass. Right? That's the interpretation. Now this is a, a mental disease, if you, if you can call it that, that is known as lycanthropy. Uh, it, it goes by a few names. And there have been records in the past of people having such a disease, right? So this is not something that is isolated only to the Bible. Um, apparently, King George III of England had such a disease, uh, where you, the, the person thinks it's an animal and, and acts like an animal. So in those days, obviously, there were no uh, mental institutions. And so somehow Nebuchadnezzar would be driven away and he'll be going to the wild and he will live like that. For seven times, until seven times pass by. Now seven, of course, is the number of uh, perfection, completeness in the Bible. And so the idea there is until the perfect time, until the complete time is passed, and then Nebuchadnezzar will be restored. So verse 24, Daniel continues, This is the interpretation, your majesty, and this is the decree the Most High has issued against my Lord, the King. You will be driven away from people and you will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. So he finishes the interpretation, and Daniel feels bold enough to offer the king some advice. So the advice in verse 27 is, Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice, renounce your sins by doing what is right, and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. Right? God is judging you for your pride, your wickedness, so renounce your sin. And there's a chance that you will be able to enjoy your prosperity, your dominion for that much more longer. And you see, Daniel has the courage to put his finger at a specific sin of the king. When he says, your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. Because Nebuchadnezzar was known for being abusive to the people that he had conquered. Like um, taking them, taking the best, subjugating them, bring them to slavery. So Daniel has the courage to put his finger on exactly where King Nebuchadnezzar's sin was. We move on to verse 28. When Nebuchadnezzar continues uh, in the third person, this narrative that he's telling, all this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? And so he's on the roof, which is a high point, is looking at the, the whole city. 
And uh, archaeologists tell us that it was indeed a most magnificent city, the, the largest city of that time. Uh, you may have heard of the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, which Nebuchadnezzar built for his wife, you know, who was from a um, different part of the empire, uh, you know, the, the, the high, high mountains. And so coming to Babylon, which was very flat, you know, she missed her hometown, and so he, he built the hanging gardens for her. He could see the 53 temples that he had built for his gods, you know, uh, built or beautified. He could see the, 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 the royal processional way, you know, with his, the lions. He could see the temple that was dedicated to his god, Marduk. He could see the, the fortified walls. And uh, archaeologists tell us that the, the walls were, were tremendous. You could have two carriots riding on top of the wall and they would be able to pass by each other without, you know, uh, one stopping by the side and they could just go by. That was how wide the walls were. And there was an outer wall and there was an inner wall. It was truly a grand fortified city. And so he looks at all this and he goes, hey, isn't this the great city that I have built to my glory? And then even as the words were on his lips, verse 31, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Then immediately, what has been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people, ate grass like the fox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven. So he acted like an animal, and he even began to look like an animal. His hair grew like feathers of an eagle, and his nails like the claws of a bird. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven. And when he did that, he says, my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out. I mean, just imagine all these Chaldeans and wise men, his officials, you know, the grand vizier, you know, all going to the jungle and find, hey! Nebuchadnezzar, O king, you are now well. Come back, come back with us. And then, you know, trimming his nails and cutting his hair. And he says, I was restored to my throne and I became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Like I said, it is... The most intriguing story you could get Hollywood to make a movie out of this, but they'll probably do a botched job. But, but, uh, a child who can read, can read this and understand 
the story. And so the question I want to ask is, okay, the story is plain enough, but what is the main point? Now, as I was doing my uh, preparation, I listened to a few people who have written, um, you know, books on this, a few people who have uh, preached sermons on this, and it was quite interesting to note that the majority of them took the main point to be Nebuchadnezzar's humbling because of his pride and subsequent restoration when he acknowledged God as the Most High. In other words, the very last verse, all those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. And they make that the main point. The humbling and subsequent restoration of Nebuchadnezzar and how God does that with us and how God does that with, with proud people. Now, I have to say that that most likely is not the main point. Okay, that is uh, not the main point. So it is it, true, of course. It obviously is biblical. The Lord exalts the humble. He um, humbles the proud. I mean, that obviously is a biblical truth. But the main point, the Daniel as the author, his main message, his goal, his intended purpose of chapter 4 is not to teach that. Let me tell you why. Because you have to think about who Daniel is writing to. And when Daniel is, 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 is uh, writing this book, he has in mind, as his primary audience, God's people who have been exiled to a foreign nation and they are under the rule and dominion of this king, this Nebuchadnezzar who has plucked them from the from their promised land, who has destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple of God. You know, he's the one that brought the articles from Yahweh's temple and now put it in his God's temple. There is no way that the original audience, the, the Jews who are in exile, when they read this, they would identify and imitate and emulate Nebuchadnezzar's example. Because he's the enemy. He, he's, he's the guy that, that, that destroyed them and brought them to this place. They are not going to identify with him. And yet there are so many you know, sermons and books where they make the main point, you see, you learn from Nebuchadnezzar, identify with him. Yes, you know, in your pride, you must humble yourself and then, you know, God will restore you. That would not have been what the original audience would have done. That would not have been Daniel's intention as he wrote to his first readers. So what then is the main point? Now, Daniel, uh, I believe, would have taken Nebuchadnezzar's letter and he would have edited it to bring this to its final form that we see here in chapter 4. And Daniel would have carefully tried to communicate to his readers what the main point is. And if we are careful and good readers of the Bible, Daniel actually makes it very clear. Because this chapter is divided into five sections. Right? You can see it's five sections. The first and the fifth section is um, Nebuchadnezzar's opening and then his conclusion. Okay, That's the first and fifth section. The second and fourth, second section is where Nebuchadnezzar uh, tells his dream, right? Tells his wise men the dream, but they can't interpret it. 
The fourth section is when Nebuchadnezzar says, ah, this was how the dream was fulfilled. Right, you know, 12 months he was, uh, after 12 months he was on the, on, on the roof of his palace, and, and the dream was indeed fulfilled. Okay, that's the second and the fourth. And the middle section, that's Daniel's interpretation. So, very clear structure, very clear five sections uh, of this chapter. And Daniel, in writing this chapter to us, he includes the main point, he states the main point one way or another in each of the five sections. So, I tell you, when you see the author doing that, very clear, right? Very clear what to him is the main point he's trying to communicate to us. So in the first section, we see the main point stated in verse 3. Nebuchadnezzar saying, His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. Now this is matched in the final section uh, at the closing when Nebuchadnezzar says in verse 34. I praise the Most High, I honored, glorified Him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. So you see the first and the last match. And then the second section, when Nebuchadnezzar is relating the dream, you see the main point stated in verse 17, where the Holy One Declare the verdict. <clears throat> so that the living, all those who are alive, all those who are living, may know that the Most High <clears throat> is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of people. You see, that's a stating of the main point. The Most High is sovereign. Gives them to anyone he wishes. And then in the middle section, <clears throat> the central section where Daniel interprets the dream, you see there in verse 25, <clears throat> he says to the king, uh, you'll be driven away, you, you'll, be, you'll eat grass, seven times you'll pass by, until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms. Right. So in chapter 17 was, the living would acknowledge, would know. But now in verse 25, Daniel says, you, you king would acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign and he gives them to anyone he wishes. And then in the fourth section, when Nebuchadnezzar relates the fulfillment of the dream, he says there, verse 32, seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. So friends, you see, as much as we are tempted to make, tempted to see in this story, ah, that, that, that God, you know, humbles the proud and, oh, how I wish he would humble my boss. My boss is so proud. Ah, God is able to humble my boss. No, no, that, I mean, that, that's true. But that's not the main point. That's not the main thing the author wants us to hear. He wants us to hear about this God who is so in control, who is the true king, that though Nebuchadnezzar is regarded by the whole known earth as indeed the king of the earth, but there exists 
a most high king of heaven and he is king of the universe. He is king over all. He is king over all the kingdoms. Now, I want you to appreciate that this is a bit different from the message that Nebuchadnezzar learned in chapter 2. Where chapter 2, if you remember, he had again this frightening dream where he saw the statue, you know, then the head was gold and then the you know, body, all those different parts, right? And the interpretation is he is that head. But after him will come another kingdom, then another kingdom, then another kingdom, and then finally, the rock, right? The rock that comes from nowhere, that's not cut by human hands, the rock knocks the statue down and the, the kingdoms crumble. And then the rock becomes the mountain. So the message there is, yes, you reign now, but after you will come another kingdom. But finally, God's kingdom will come and it will be great like a mountain and that will stand forever. That's a bit different from what Nebuchadnezzar is learning in this chapter. Because in chapter 2, the emphasis was on God's kingdom that will come in and God's kingdom that will endure. And the God's kingdom is the one that will endure forever. But the emphasis here in chapter 4 is not just a time will come when God's kingdom will come in, but now, 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 even as you think that you are the king of the earth, now God is king. And he is so sovereign that it is to the people that he wants that he gives the kingdoms to. And he gives them to anyone he wishes. So Nebuchadnezzar, you are king now because the most high king of heaven is the one who has given you this dominion according to his purpose, according to his plans. So this must encourage us as God's people who live in the month of August. And the interesting thing about the month of August is uh, September's coming up, right? So I joke with uh, some of my students, ah, I just realized that September is coming up. And I told them the most exciting thing for me about September is the new iPhone is going to be launched. Uh, but of course, the significant thing for us all as Singaporeans is uh, election time is coming. And uh, as, uh, as a 29-year-old, I finally may have the chance to vote for the first time. You know, after waiting so long. No, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. I'm, I'm 39. Yeah. <clears throat> okay, so no matter what happens during these elections, as God's people, we can have the confidence that whoever comes into power has already been predetermined by the sovereign God. But not just us as Singaporeans, right? I mean, you look around the world and you see God's people suffering under the regime it, the, 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 the wicked and violent rule of IS and the numbers of Christians that have been martyred and face continual suffering because of that. Christians in North Korea under the tyrannical regime of uh, the Kim dynasty. Right, this is a message that God's people need to hold on to that yes, even though it appears God is not in control. Even though it seems like this pagan, anti-God power is over us and he seems to be doing not the will of God, but the will of, of, of the devil. 
No, no, it is the Most High who is sovereign. And he is the one who has given the kingdom now for a time, given power and authority now for a time to those he wishes. And we can look at this, we can look at history and see God's people suffering under these rulers, you know, under Stalin, under Hitler, under Mao Zedong, under Pol Pot, and we can think, okay, okay, but, but why? Why did it happen this way? Why, why did they have to suffer this way? I mean, we could have all these questions, genuine, understandable questions. And I'm not saying we shouldn't ask them. We can ask these questions, but friends, do you see that the message is clear? That this God is the High King. And He has given the power and authority for a time now to whoever He has wished. His will will be done because He is this sovereign God. Now I want to get you to turn to uh, Revelation 12 with me. Because I want to show you that while not all of our questions can be answered, the Bible does give some answer to some of our questions. Revelation 12, verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters, talking about the devil, who accuses them before our God, day and night has been hurled down. Day, right, talking about uh, talking about the saints, they triumph over him, triumph over the devil. How? By the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. So you see what uh, John is telling us here. He's saying, now the kingdom of God, salvation and power of our, of our, of our God has now come in. And, and Satan, the devil, has been hurled down and God's people have defeated him. How have they defeated him? When you look at the beheadings of Christians by IS, when you see children, because they are Christians, being crucified by this jihadist, when you read of uh, what goes on in a North Korean labor camp, send there, people send there simply because they were caught worshipping the one true God. It may seem that the devil, it may seem that the evil forces are the ones that's winning when Christians are being killed. It may seem that it is the devil's kingdom that is a- advancing. God's rule is shrinking. But John gives us an insight in chapter 12 by saying, no, when you see Christians being killed because they are Christians, that in fact is a triumph. Because they are saying, this God 
is so important, this God is true, this God is so worthy that I would rather worship Him. I would rather hang on in allegiance to Him than count my life more important than that. And that is a triumph of the King. And the devil cannot win against that. When Christians say they value worshipping of God more than their very lives, that they would not give up on their right to worship this God, because this God deserves this worship. They count their lives as nothing. They love Him more than they love their lives. That, in effect, is actually a triumph of the kingdom. It's a triumph of the Lamb, because the Lamb is shown to be worthy. So we don't have all the answers, but we have some. But the point is this, that the Most High is King, and His purposes are being worked out in every nation, under every pagan or secular ruler. Do you think that it is impossible for the time to come when a Singaporean Christian will say to another Singaporean Christian, hey, if we keep on standing for Christ, we will be in prison for this one day. Right, yeah, now, 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 like that, yeah, no, no possibility, right, that you'll be in prison for following Christ. But do not think that it is impossible for that day to come. And when that day comes, we need to hear this message. That whatever power and authority God has put over us, He is in control over that. And you flip back to Daniel 4. You see there in verse 17, that it says, The Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms. He gives them to anyone He wishes, and He sets over them the lowliest of people. Now, the reason why we read Ephesians 1 was because uh, in Ephesians 1, we see God has indeed done that. He has given the kingdom of the world to one who is the lowliest. So in verse 10, we read, uh, For everything to be put into effect when times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. All things have now been given to the one who is lowliest. And he is lowliest because this Christ, this Jesus, humbled himself. You see, the king Nebuchadnezzar, he was forced into humiliation. He was forced to humble himself because of his pride. Because he, he said, oh, isn't this Babylon, the, the Babylon that I created? but he was forced into humiliation because of his pride. But this Christ, this Christ who could rightly say, hey, this universe, did I not create this? All these great things, the stars, the black holes, I created this. But this Christ humbled himself and he was not forced into humbling and humiliation. No, he did it voluntarily. He was being obedient to the Father. He was not forced into humility because of his pride. 
he voluntarily humbled himself even to death on a cross because of our pride. Because of our pride that deserves the wrath of God. This Christ voluntarily humbled himself even to death on a cross so that he could save us from our sin, from our pride. And in saving us, we can be enabled to know and to live and to acknowledge Him as the true King. So friends, go out into the world confident of this, that whoever seems to be King and authority over you just is there because the true King has put Him there. So don't give in to them. Live as citizens of the heaven, worshipping and obeying the one who is the true king. May God help us. Amen.